says, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Father, we humbly ask as we continue now in our worship, as we've sang and prayed and fellowship, Lord, and done other things in our worship towards you, we want to now give you worship, Lord, by giving you the attention you rightly deserve to speak into our life what it may be that we need to hear you say to us. So, Lord, we thank you for the word of God, for your spirit giving it to us initially, and we pray now that it would be your Holy Spirit who would not only prepare us to hear, but would speak to us. And that, Lord, truly this morning, we would not hear wise or persuasive words of any man, but experience the demonstration of your spirit and your power speaking something directly to our hearts. So bless your word and speak to us. We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, one of a few different metaphors that Jesus used to describe himself, one particular was that he likened himself to a physician. And if you think of what a physician is, a physician is basically someone who diagnoses an unhealthy condition, and then they make an effort to try and resolve that unhealthy condition. Jesus, referring to his own life and ministry at one point, made this statement. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus, as the great physician, wants to help those whose lives have become unhealthy, perhaps, in regards to the fact of sin and Satan's influence sort of infecting their lives and causing their life and their lifestyle to be unhealthy. And Jesus wants to help those in that condition. And the Lord will at times use even faithful and healthy servants as his instruments, as the great physician, to sort of help those who are spiritually unhealthy. In fact, that's what this section this morning we're looking at together is really in regards to. It's really a section of scripture to teach us about helping spiritually unhealthy people. And how we can do that as servants of the Lord, how we can let the great physician Jesus use us as his instruments, if you would, to help those who are spiritually unhealthy in the condition that they're in. Uh, And when we think of that idea of spiritually unhealthy people, well, spiritually unhealthy people are those who we're going to see in our text that are living in opposition to God. Living in opposition to God, to God's word, to God's will for their life. They're individuals who are either ignorant of God's truth or they're ignoring God's truth. They know it, but they're just sort of rejecting it in their life. They've become blinded and deceived in their way of thinking. And the root problem, which the end of our text tells us, is that they've been actually ensnared by the devil and taken captive spiritually and the devil has sort of successfully enslaved them to follow his will rather than living and following God's will. And they're in this unhealthy condition in great need of spiritual deliverance and as servants of the Lord, the Lord wants us to be open to him using us 
and perhaps in our relationship and connection to them to perhaps be someone who can help in the process to get out of that unhealthy condition but we as the Lord's servants who may be healthy and faithful to Jesus still have to be wise and discerning in regards to how we go about that process and really that's what this text is doing giving us instruction how to be wise and discerning to help those who may be spiritually unhealthy remember Paul is sort of in this train of thought where he's just encouraged Timothy to allow his life to be a useful vessel for the Lord. We talked about that last time that that Timothy would be prepared for every good work and useful for the Lord as his master. And it's with that understanding he then says verse 23 as we pick it up. He says, "Timothy, flee not which is not good," verse 22. "Pursue after faith, love and peace." And then he says also verse 23, "but avoid but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes." knowing that they generate strife. So he warns here of the danger of being entangled in, you might say, worthless arguments, which only really cause really hurt in relationships rather than help in relationships, and it only cause problems. He refers to verse 23 there to disputes. And disputes, of course, are just verbal disagreements, strong opinions that we may hold about a certain thing that enter into then debates on matters where we question another people's thoughts and ideas about something and we want to persuade them to our way of thinking as the right way he's not talking here about just healthy peaceful conversations sharing ideas differences of thought that's not what's being described here he's talking about when when we're actually really sort of arguing over an issue or debating over a subject with intensity and passion because we are thoroughly convinced we are right and another individual is wrong now take notice the bible shows us here that there are such a thing in fact quite honestly many disputes that the bible says here are just foolish and ignorant in their nature uh, that is the basis and the reasoning behind these disputes is just foolish and ignorant interesting the terms that are used there are foolish the the language that's literally used it literally could be translated moronic stupid that's the idea there just moronic stupid worthless disputes the idea is there are unwise things to dispute over he says these are also at times just ignorant in their basis and there the idea implies that the person himself who's disputing at times or trying to engage in the dispute with another is unlearned they're uninformed perhaps they're an individual who lacks knowledge but they think they know everything right they think they know everything but honestly they're missing a lot of the facts and the answers again th- this may be perhaps someone who's proud and divisive in heart and they want to engage in spiritual debates and disputes over things maybe over some doctrinal issue or some strong conviction that they have on a spiritual matter so they want to question what you believe or challenge what your theological bent is and they want to dispute and you know get into a heated debate over that it could be just someone with a strong viewpoint on a particular matter and they just hold a really strong view and on a particular subject and issue and so they want to debate over that with someone sometimes these kind of things happen when it's somebody who's just living in a wrong way and again they're living maybe in a way that's not healthy they're violating the truth of God's word but they want to fight and defend 
their right to live that way. And so they want to dispute and, and engage and somehow prove that they have a right and reason to live however they want despite what God's word or God's will says in regards to humanity. Again, there are just multitudes of reasons we could fill in the blanks that a lot of times disputes are just foolish, ignorant disputes. They're just, they're just stupid things to dispute about. They're just worthless in the, the nature of, of what they are. And the reason he says here that they're foolish to dispute over is notice verse 23 in the text, he says, is because they just generate strife. That their disputes, because they're foolish and what it is to dispute over, is it's just a foolish dispute to get into. They, as the result of that, they start quarrels, they produce anger and tension in relationships they result in just bitter resentment in relationships and, and, and cause trouble among people and conflict. They create agitation between relationships. And rather than bring people together or strengthen relationships, they do the exact opposite. They just generate strife and they breed division and they ruin harmony. And that's why he says in verse 23, we need to learn to avoid foolish and ignorant disputes because they generate strife. The word avoid implies just decline the opportunity to get engaged in them. Just don't embrace, when you see it coming, don't embrace the invitation. You know, refuse to participate in I think sometimes as human beings, we just need to use discernment in some of the conversations that present themselves to us. You know, I mean, there have been times over the years, even from a pastoral perspective, I'll just get a random call from someone I don't even know. And, and it's almost, I wonder if they just have like a list. They just call and just start, you know, as soon as you answer the phone, oh, I'd like to speak to you. I'd like to get your input or your opinion upon, you know, this theological or that issue. And so you answer and you get about two sentences into it. And right away they cut you off and, the, and they just go on for like five minutes straight. And you listen to them. And then I just usually just say, listen, obviously you haven't called for my opinion. You've called to try and inform my opinion according to what you believe. I'm not interested in an argument. Have a good day. And, and, and sometimes people, they're not even looking to even dialogue. They're just looking to dispute and, you know, get into a debate over certain things. Again, whether it's something theological or political or just their own convictions and ideas about things. And, and the Bible tells us here, there's a time where we have to realize when a conversation is not going in a productive way. It's not healthy, but in fact, it's actually just counterproductive and harmful. You have to almost kind of diagnose those unhealthy conversations and just steer clear of them and just avoid them altogether. I think this is just one of those practical commands of God that we have to seek to obey sometimes. Again, whether it's with maybe our own family, you know, what parent has not said, sometimes you got to learn how to pick your battles even with your own children, especially as they get older and they have certain opinions and ideas about things. And the older they get, the more they believe they're actually the right ideas, right? And the right opinions. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't educate and train and teach our children, but there's wisdom at times to realize, look, is this really worth disputing over? Is it really worth engaging in and become this hot, heated battle? Is it really that critical or essential? I think sometimes as married couples, we have to evaluate that sometimes just foolish and ignorant disputes become a part of our marital conversations and tensions. Sometimes we can just seek to avoid those things and avert those kind of things. Maybe again with the, our own church family, I guess even Christians sometimes can be the you know, greatest individuals who just seem to almost love to argue. 
and love to dispute over things. Maybe with the, the people in the world or unbelievers, they want to challenge you and fight you on certain issues. I'm not saying you shouldn't talk to unbelievers and you shouldn't answer their questions, but at times be wise too. Don't get drawn into the ring and find yourself disputing in just foolish ways and all it does is generate strife and unhealthy things. So he says, pay attention, avoid these things and a lot of times because those who are looking to enter into foolish and ignorant disputes that just generate strife, the problem is is they're unhealthy and therefore they're just trying to draw you in to all their issues a lot of times. what he's going to tell us here. He says, verse 24, notice, and the servant of the Lord, he says, must not quarrel. So, again, because of who we represent and because of who we reflect, we have to handle things accordingly in our desires. He says, the servant of the Lord. That means we represent the Lord. We're a servant of the Lord. So we should represent the Lord and how we handle things and interact with people. Remember, Matthew chapter 12 says of Jesus and his ministry, it says this, that Jesus would not quarrel nor raise his voice. And so the Bible reminds us, and if you look at the life and nature of Jesus as you study him in the word of God, you notice that Jesus was very influential. Jesus was very influential. The power and the authority of God was in his life because he was God. Jesus was very influential in his love and Jesus influenced and persuaded people powerfully. That being said, Jesus was never forceful. Jesus was never domineering, nor was he aggressive, nor was he pushy. And when I read the life and ministry of Jesus, honestly, I don't even see Jesus spending vast amounts of time debating issues or quarreling over subjects with people. I see Jesus speaking the truth and then letting the truth fall where it may in the hearts and lives of people. Listen, the Lord does not want us to be quarrelsome people. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel. The Lord doesn't want us as Christians to be argumentative, confrontational people. He doesn't want us to be those who have a reputation in our family with our you know, co-workers or friends or, or whatever. He doesn't want us to be that one with the reputation who just likes to strive with people. And always argue and debate and have to prove our point or, or to be that person who just has to force everybody to agree with us or make them comply and see what is true, our idea, our demands. The servant of the Lord should not be someone always getting into fights and verbal battles. Instead, we should be individuals who are those who want to help people but in peaceful ways. We shouldn't be problem starters and troublemakers. We should be problem solvers and those who are looking to just avert contentiousness. Proverbs 20 verse 3 says this, It is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. Any fool can start a quarrel. So he says it's honorable, it's wise for someone to learn how to stop striving when you see that. Well, having said what we should not be, not be quarrelsome, when dealing with unhealthy people or difficult people, he then goes on in verse 23 to tell us, excuse me, verse 24, to tell us what we should be. He says, let me tell you what you should be. He says, don't be quarrelsome. However, he says, the servant of the Lord should be gentle to all, able to teach, and patient. So again, first thing we see there is that the servant of the Lord should be gentle. That is kind. Someone who's, we might say, 
tender, someone who's gentle, so sensitive, therefore, in how we relate to people and how we speak to people, that there would be a level of sensitivity, that we'd refrain from being harsh or unkind when we're dealing with those maybe who are in error or those who are in an unhealthy condition because of you know, what they're caught up in, that we wouldn't become unkind and harsh, but that we would actually show sensitivity and gentleness in our dealings with them. Again, think of Jesus, if you would. Jesus was God in the flesh, the Holy One, the one against whom all sin was against. He was being dishonored and disrespected. And Jesus lived perfect. He never did anything wrong. I mean, if anybody had a right to kind of have a self-righteous attitude, it would be Jesus. We can't claim that we've never done anything wrong ourselves or that we've never made mistakes in when we relate to other people. Jesus never did anything wrong. And yet Jesus, possessing all authority in Matthew 11, said of himself, Jesus' statement about himself, his only autobiographical statement in the Bible, Jesus said, he said, learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle and meek is how Jesus described himself. Here is Jesus, perfect, powerful, but yet Jesus describes himself as gentle. Matthew 12 says of Jesus' ministry operations when he dealt with sinful, broken people, those who were in desperate need in their condition. It says of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. Again, Jesus treated people gently, tenderly. He sought to take things that were in a bad condition, that were bruised, that were smoking and almost ready to go extinct. And rather than just finish them off and bring the death blow, Jesus would work to gently try and restore that which was broken. He would gently try and be sensitive and help nurse people back to health and restore them to a right condition. And again, as servants of the Lord, which is what verse 24 says, we're to reflect Jesus, which means that when we interact with people, when we deal with people, even in unhealthy conditions, morally and spiritually, when we deal with difficult people, we should seek to, like Jesus, interact in a spirit of gentleness. That gentleness would characterize how we deal with them and how we speak to them. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if any man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So we're not to be quarrelsome. We're to seek to be gentle. And then secondly, he says as well there in verse 24 that we're also, the servant of the Lord must be able to teach. Now that's interesting because that reminds us that we're to be capable to instruct and guide people in the right way in which they should go, especially if they're going in a wrong direction that we would be competent to help people to understand, to see things properly, not just criticize them for their error, but actually take time to explain to them what is best for their life. To be willing gently and, and to take that moment that they may need if they're struggling to be someone maybe who would come alongside of them and actually provide some input and counsel and guidance in their life to show them a better way, teaching them what God's word says on matters, helping them to live for and walk in God's will, and actually giving people the knowledge how to live right. So perhaps they won't continue to live wrong. You know, the Bible says that God declares, my people die for lack of knowledge. 
for lack of knowledge. That people are dying just for lack of knowledge. Listen, we have to always remember, it's very important, sometimes people live in wrong ways and in wrong patterns, quite honestly, because no one's ever taught them any different. I am thoroughly convinced that a great reason why so many of the young men in our world are broken and confused is because they simply never had in some ways a healthy, strong father figure to teach them what it means to be a man, to teach them how to function. So they live in dysfunction because in some ways it is true that they've never just been told how to do it right. And so all they see around them is examples of how to do it wrong and, and they, they just lack the knowledge of even how to do it the right way. And so again, so important that we realize sometimes people just need to be educated. They need somebody to actually take the time and maybe our role is that the Lord would want to use us in strategic conversations to be someone who comes along and doesn't just tell them what's wrong or criticize or tear them down, but actually we're able to teach them. Maybe to sort of mentor and train and come alongside of them and assist them to see the right way to go about things differently. He also says the servant of the Lord must also be patient. Again, when people are doing wrong, it is so easy to get irritated, to get bothered, to begin to you know, get impatient. We become frustrated. Why? Because we want to see them stop what's doing wrong. Because if they're doing wrong, perhaps some way it's, it's influencing our life. It's affecting us because they're doing wrong. And so it's easy then to sort of get impatient and angry and irritated. And we want them to change and we want them to change right now. But the reality is a lot of times it's a process when people are unhealthy. A lot of times it doesn't happen perhaps overnight. Sometimes people are slow learners. And from what I found, they kind of drag their feet in regards to responding to what is true and what is right. And oftentimes, look, people are going to make mistakes. They're going to backtrack. They're going to fall down again even after they got going. Human beings also, you haven't noticed yet, they can be pretty stubborn. They can be pretty stubborn and rebellious for a while. That's why he says the servant of the Lord must be patient. Patient. We have to be gentle and able to teach and patient with people. Patient, perhaps, if they're struggling or, or living in an unhealthy way. Again, ponder and consider how patient has the Lord been with us in our lives as sheep. Do we not owe a little bit of the same to other human beings who are sheep just like us? Again, whether it's our spouse or whether it's maybe one of our children or a family member or fellow Christian, that we would be patient with them, patient with the unsaved loved one, patient with that person who's just very unhealthy and just giving them latitude a little bit and grace and just being patient and letting God's process unfold in their life. This is important for us if we want to be helpful to them. He goes on, verse 25, to then say, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. So notice, though we should endeavor to correct wrong living and wrong thinking, he speaks here in verse 25 that our attitude is very important in the process, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Notice, there are going to be times due to the devil's deception of people and his misguiding of their lives, there are going to be times when people will be living in opposition. The idea there is in opposition to God, in opposition to God's will 
and what God's word says. They're living in direct opposition to what God's plan is for their life. They're living opposed to the good plan that God wants for their life, but they're living opposed to that right now. They position themselves in opposition to that and notice they're not really opposing us. And this is important. They're opposing God. But sometimes it feels like they're opposing us because maybe we feel the same way God does or we think the same way God does. So it feels like they're opposing us. Listen, we can't take it personally. They're opposing God. They're opposing their creator. They're opposing the word of God and the authority of God in their life. And so we have to realize what we should be is concerned for them in their condition because the Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker. And our heart should be concerned for them because of the condition that they're in and out of love for them, we should try and offer certainly perhaps some correction. Yet he says here in our text, we're to do this with an attitude of humility. That when we seek to offer correction, we're not to be arrogant in our attitude. We're again, not to be harsh or unkind or critical in how we speak to them or relate to them. We're we're to resist any self-righteous attitude that may come forth in the way that we're kind of handling ourselves. We're to be understanding. We're to speak honestly, but humbly. Honestly, but humbly. Challenging them to rethink the error of their way. Letting them see that we're not looking to condemn, but we do think they should consider change. And helping them to understand why and to just see and and even helping them to understand, listen, we can relate because we've lived in error before. And that we understand what it's like to, to be in a place where they're at. And again, it's not enough just to expose and complain. We have to offer them help how to correct their course. And we must remember that when someone is living in error and darkness, being challenged, right, that's offensive. When you're living in the dark and you're living in error, when somebody challenges you on that, that's offensive. And then what happens when you get offended? You get defensive. And they get defensive. And so this is why, again, it's really important that humility be involved in correction. Because it's the humility in our attitude if we help to try and correct someone who's in opposition to God and His ways It's that humility in our attitude that disarms the erring person. It kind of helps them to put their guard down a little bit. It helps them to be a little bit more receptive. If they feel you can understand that you have struggled as well, then they can kind of connect to that a little bit because they can sense this is just another person who's failed before themselves. They've made their own mistakes and I can sense that by how they're relating and talking to me and they're just trying to offer me some input because maybe they love me and they don't want to see me have some of the same pains and regrets because of the error of my own way. And how we go about correction often influences people's receptivity to it. That's why he says there, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Paul then concludes by telling us why we should want to help them in that unhealthy condition. He says, verse 25, going on, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, that they may know the truth And that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Notice again the source and the root of the problem. What's causing that person 
to live in an unhealthy condition in their life? What's causing them to live in opposition to God's ways and to God's word? Well, the reason is right there in the text. Do you see it? He says these people, verse 26, have been ensnared by the devil. They've been taken captive spiritually by the devil and being influenced to do his will. The idea is instead of God's will. The point we cannot overlook is there is an underlying spiritual issue that's going on. There's an underlying spiritual problem. There's something in the unseen that is taking place. That person has been caught in a trap that has been set by the devil very craftily. Again, if we think of who the devil is, the devil is a created angelic being initially, right? And what did he do? When he was first created, he served the purposes of God. And he sought to do God's will and to facilitate God's will, living there in heaven. But then the devil, the Bible tells us, was filled with pride. And he became self-willed. And he wanted his will and his way instead of God's way and to do what he pleased. So he rebelled against God and therefore was cast out of heaven and became a fallen, unclean, demonic spirit. And so now the devil in that fallen condition, having opposed and rebelled against God, is now alive and at work as a dark, evil spirit. And he is doing everything he can to oppose God, to live in opposition to God's will and God's ways, and to do everything he can to oppose what God wants on this earth. And the devil's primary effort is working to oppose God's plans and purposes in human beings because he knows that's one of God's greatest desires is to work in the lives of people on this earth so he seeks to oppose people from walking with God and doing God's will and that happens in two ways initially he seeks to hinder and oppose people from entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ so the devil seeks as much as he can to work in opposition to keep people blinded spiritually. Second Corinthians 4 says that he's blinded the minds of those who do not believe. So the devil seeks to keep the person who's not yet in a relationship with Christ in a condition of unbelief because it's in their unbelief he's then capable to blind them spiritually and keep them captive spiritually to keep doing his will and not living for God's will. Jesus, speaking of the devil, said that he's the father of lies and that is, that's his native language, to lie, to deceive. That he's a thief who comes to rob, kill, and destroy. That is, before people are set free by the truth of Jesus, the devil enslaves them in lifestyles of sin. He keeps them captive to their own unbelief and deception. They're like spiritual captives and they're spiritually blind and shackled spiritually. Listen, and they can't even see it because it's spiritual. So they don't even realize they're enslaved. It's almost the worst force, uh, the worst you know, form of enslavement that you don't even know you're enslaved. That you don't even know that you're shackled and imprisoned spiritually in that condition. And the devil seeks to keep people from God's will by keeping them occupied doing his will. I mean, isn't it interesting to consider that the Bible actually says in verse 26 that there are people who are doing his will. We often think about doing God's will. Well, the devil actually has a will and a plan for people's lives too. Do you know what it is? To ruin them. And then to drag them into the pit of hell where they're tormented forever and ever and ever 
in unquenchable fire and pain and torment and suffering forever and ever and ever. That's the devil's will. And the devil seeks to keep people ensnared and to oppose them from coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ to being saved so that they might experience God's will and plan for their lives to keep them in that condition. But listen, even after we're saved, even after a person accepts Jesus Christ, let us not be naive to think that the devil just decides at that moment, though he's lost your soul eternally, that he's going to just back off and let you enjoy the rest of your time serving Jesus till you go to heaven. The devil actively works to oppose us from walking in God's will and God's plan for our life. Ephesians 6 speaks of spiritual warfare, that the devil is constantly battling against Christians. He's trying to oppose you from faithfully following God's will for your life and being a fruitful Christian. He seeks to tempt the Christian to sin and live in disobedience, to turn away from God's will. Peter, writing of this to warn us, said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Again, the devil continuously tries to set, listen, spiritual traps and snares for the Christian. Just like someone who would hide a landmine carefully as an enemy because they want to destroy the combatant. The devil has his little landmines that he plants in our lives in strategic ways is always looking to blow up God's plan for your life and to cause you to head in a different direction. And so he works in opposition and seeks to cause God's people through disobedience and sin and backsliding and turning away from the Lord and, and being deceived spiritually to walk in error. Again, listen, whether it's sinful living or whether it's just getting caught up in wrong theology and wrong understandings of God, the Bible is telling us we must understand that there are those living in opposition to God's will and word and they're in that unhealthy condition because he says these people have been taken captive by the devil. They've become ensnared. The devil set the trap and he's caught them in his trap and now he is working in opposition in their life. They're ensnared and he's deceived these people into doing his will. And listen, they're like prisoners of war. This is the imagery here. And because they're prisoners, they need help to escape that unhealthy spiritual condition. The hard part is this. You and I can't change people. We can't change people. That's something that must happen in an experience between them and their God. But what we can do is participate in the process by praying for God to bring them into a way of escape, for praying that God would help them to experience knowing the truth, coming to their senses, being able to escape the snare of the devil. Notice the hopeful desire we're to have for them. He says, we're not to be quarreling, we're to be gentle and patient in humility trying to correct them so that through those things happening, through those things that God would bring the change that he desires for their life. That's why he says in verse 25 there that perhaps through us doing our part and God doing his greater part, perhaps that God will grant them repentance so that they can, he says, know the truth, come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Take notice, God wants people to be liberated from error. God wants people to know the truth. 
The Bible tells us it's not God's will that any would perish, but all would come to repentance and that God desires all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus said, because if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Those invisible shackles that people can't see, the invisible antidote to break the chains, to break the shackles, to liberate people is truth. It's when they hear the truth of the word of the Lord, when they hear the truth of God and it shines into their soul, knowing the truth is what helps people be liberated. It says here as well that God also wants them to, I love the language he uses there, verse 26, come to their senses. To know the truth and come to their senses. When somebody comes to their senses, they stop living foolish and wrong and they act sensible and proper instead. Right? When somebody comes to their senses, they've been awakened that their viewpoint has been wrong, their thinking has been confused, and it's kind of that moment you come to your senses where you kind of have that wake-up experience where you go, what am I doing? What have I been doing? And this is the idea there, that God wants to bring them through the truth to that moment where they come to their senses and realize, what am I doing? Uh, well, the way that I have been living is foolish and wrong. I, uh, this doesn't make sense. I need to do what's right. I need to turn towards what's proper and what's sensible. And notice God's heart for that is so that, going on, verse 26, so that they can escape the snare of the devil. That they can escape the snare of the devil. The heart of the Lord is to help people escape anything that the devil has lured them into. Again, I think of the words of Jesus in regards to these things. Jesus, remember, is a savior with the power to set people free. And Jesus said regarding sin and its unhealthy influence in our life, Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Please understand, sin's not just bad because it's wrong. It is. But sin's bad because it's enslaving. It brings a person into bondage. It takes away their freedom. It causes a person to live like a slave. And the devil uses our rebellion against God to enslave us, to then make us a captive. But Jesus promised this. Jesus said, but if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. And what a wonderful thing to realize it is possible for any person to escape the snare of the devil if they want to. It is possible for any person to escape the snare of the devil, I emphasize, if they desire to. Notice, if you would, how God makes it possible that we do have a choice to participate in that matter. Paul said what in verse 25 there? If God perhaps will grant them repentance... If God perhaps will grant them repentance, another translation renders that in hopes that God would grant them repentance, that is bring it about in them. Now again, what's repentance? Repentance is something that takes place inside of a person's heart and mind where they have a change of thinking that leads to a change of how they behave. It's a change of mind about how you see something or how you think about something. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction in not only how you think, but a change in how you then behave and live because you completely changed your mind about it. 
And please understand, biblical repentance is not remorse that you've been doing something wrong. Biblical repentance is not sadness because of the problems you're now experiencing because you've been living the wrong way. Biblical repentance is a decision to turn away from error. It's not just to be sad that you've been in error. It's a decision to turn away from error and to turn towards God and to live for God instead. And so repentance is a choice. It's a conscious decision that the human being is responsible for where we choose in repentance to say, I have been wrong. The way I've thought about this is wrong. The way I've been living is wrong. And so I am choosing to change my mind and I will now live right. I will think rightly about this. This is biblical repentance. Yet note in the text, please see this, it says there that God may grant or give the ideas repentance. Now to me, this is insightful because God is the one who graciously gives a person in error, listen, the desire to repent and the capacity to repent. Repentance is my responsibility as a human being. I have to make that choice. But it is God in his mercy and love, despite our error or selfish rebellion, who is the one who gives someone a desire to repent. He gives them the capacity and the power to repent in their life. God moves powerfully by his spirit upon a heart and persuades and moves the heart by shining his light into their soul for those windows and moments of time that they can see just enough clearly to where God is saying, listen, you're wrong. Please turn. And he gives just that window of moment where the light shines in in hopes that the person will see what is right and see the error of their way and choose to respond. But the reality is this, though God moves and stirs the heart towards repentance, it's the individual that must choose to repent. Though God may move upon a heart powerfully, a person must embrace the doorway of repentance that God is offering in that moment. And if they choose to respond to God moving on their heart to repent, and they turn, they make that choice, then the wonderful thing is, he says here, they can escape. If they choose to sense that stirring, but yet though they sense that stirring to remain enslaved, if they choose not to turn and to continue in their stubborn rebellion, then they choose to remain in that self-destructive, unhealthy condition and lifestyle. Because though God was trying to grant them repentance and move them to repentance, they resisted what God wanted for them. But what a marvelous thing that God in his mercy, though we offend and sin against him, is loving enough to move on our hearts and to give us an opportunity to repent, to give us the desire to want to change, to give us the capacity to want to turn. And the wonderful thing is that if we choose to respond, then verse 25 says great deliverance can happen. And God gives us the power to then walk it out, to make the turn, to be escaped and set free once for all. You know, could perhaps today that be something that God's prompting in one of your hearts? Perhaps today God is trying to grant you repentance. He's allowing you to see. And in this moment, the light of the Lord is lovingly shining into your life. And God's saying, please, please, don't strive against me. 
You can change. You can turn. The doorway's open. But you have to go through the doorway and make the decision. And for those of us who have people in our lives this morning, maybe who we love and we're concerned about, may God help us as servants of the Lord not to quarrel with them, but to be gentle and able to teach and patient and humility trying to bring correction because we're concerned for them that we want to see God liberate them from the unhealthy condition that they're in. Shall we stand together?